morning. My name is Tyler Southard. Uh, my wife Courtney and I lead a small group here at Linworth. Uh, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Reading this morning is from 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tyler. Good morning. Good morning. Well, this morning, as Tyler read, we're beginning a series from 2 Timothy that we have called Entrusted with the Gospel. It's a story of an older leader entrusting his mission and his message to a younger leader. It's deeply personal. It's from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. But to introduce it, let me first dip into an incident from our own American history. The scene is March 15th, 1783. And George Washington is addressing officers still under his command at New Newburgh, New York. And if we can see that image, and there we go. Very good. This captures it. Now, the point of the meeting was to discuss a very explosive petition that had been circulating calling on Washington's officers to mutiny because Congress was not paying them. And if you read the article on the Mount Vernon website, here's what that petition suggested. It read, if the war continued, his officers would lead the army into some unsettled country and let the American people fend for themselves. Again, keep in mind, they had been serving for five years without pay. I don't think most of you would stay at your jobs for five years without pay. Or if the war was over, the petition read, they would march on Congress and demand their pay at gunpoint. Now, Washington was equally concerned about the broken promises of Congress. But his attendance at the meeting, it was a surprise, or a, a, un, a meeting not including him, his attendance at the meeting was not expected. Again, here's how it reads. On that day, as his officers crowded into the Temple of Virtue, Washington slipped in through a side door unnoticed. His men were surprised when he suddenly stood before them and read a passionate nine-page speech, sympathizing with their demands, but denouncing the methods they now contemplated to achieve them. After finishing the speech, Washington tried to read a letter from Congressman Joseph Jones of Virginia. Stumbling over the opening words, 
he put on a new pair of spectacles, glasses, saying, gentlemen, you must pardon me. I have grown gray in your service and now find myself growing blind. His officers were not aware of this, and the incident was so moving that many of his officers openly wept, remembering how much Washington had endured alongside of them. On the next day, they passed a unanimous resolution commending General Washington for his devotion to them. The mutiny of the officers was over. Washington kept his promise, writing one letter after another to Congress, and finally winning his officers five years of full pay and pensions for their service of war. Now, I point this out because I see parallels in this speech and Paul's second letter to Timothy. There is similar emotion expressed. Paul, in weakness, reflects on what he has endured. And there is that same sense of how suffering and how working together in a common cause can create unbreakable bonds in people. Paul, like Washington, sympathized with Timothy's weakness and overwhelming circumstances. But nonetheless, he calls on him to walk a road less traveled. And we're going to see all of these kinds of themes over the next eight weeks as we journey through 2 Timothy. Now, to understand and to appreciate the great treasures of this letter, we have to understand what's happening. And I'd like to do that this morning by first looking through the lens of Paul and then secondly, looking through the lens of Timothy. Now, we're going to jump around 2 Timothy a bit, and it'll help you to have uh, your Bible open to it. If you're using uh, the chair Bible, it's page 995. The verses will also be on the screen, but here's the outline if that's helpful to you. We're going to answer these questions. The first half of our message, it'll, it'll be like a two-part message this morning. The first part is, who is Paul? Who is Timothy? And then for the second part in our application, we'll answer these questions. How can I fan into flame the gift of God in me? Am I called to suffer for the gospel? And if I am called, how can I suffer in the power of God, as verse 8 says? So let's pray, and we'll jump into it. But pray with me. We'll need God's grace and power to help us understand where we are in our journey relative to the scriptures this morning. Father, we welcome you here by the power of your Holy Spirit. You know what questions and concerns each of us bring here this morning, the things that have impacted our souls and Father, as the gathered people of God, I ask you in Jesus' name to meet the unique and specific needs that everyone here brings with them this morning. Make us all attentive learners because you have something profound and powerful for each of us. Let us listen. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. We pray this desperately, Father, 
In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Okay, you ready? Seatbelts on? All right, first Paul. What is happening in Paul's life? If we piece together evidence from Scripture as well as tradition, it is apparent Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. It is his second imprisonment. And unlike his first, which was a comfortable house arrest that we learned about, uh, we learn about at the end of the book of Acts, now Paul is writing from a cold, dark cell. It's around 66 or 67 AD. And Paul recognizes that in his trial, the end of his life is near. Turn over a few pages and look at chapter 4, verse 6. He writes, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is a man facing his end, and he is virtually alone. And one thing that sticks out is his capacity to express his needs. He feels the emotions we'd expect. In this case, the pain of loneliness. Paul has become a dangerous man to be associated with. In verse 15 of chapter 1, he highlights the cost of his imprisonment. Here it says, you know that everyone in the province of Asia, everyone, everyone has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Now by mentioning Phygelus and Hermogenes by name, I take it that they were leaders, are significant individuals in the Christian community, and their decision to distance themselves from Paul was surprising and damaging and hurtful. And their actions served to highlight the courage and loyalty of another man named Onesiphorus. I see Paul keeping things in balance here. In chapter 1, verse 4, he tells Timothy in very tender, relational, and emotional language that I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Paul does not hide his affection. He expresses his need for Timothy's presence later on, back to chapter 4, verse 9, when he says to him, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Again, another contrast here. And in verse 16 and 17, we, we get here a final example of Paul's state of mind. And here Paul reviews the trial that landed him in prison. Verse 16. At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth in that present moment. You know, this letter is filled with the reality of what the gospel 
had cost Paul. These are the words and expressions of a man experiencing aloneness. And yet, while telling the truth of betrayal, he does not collapse into an emotional vortex of self-pity, bitterness, or regret. He does not resort to passive-aggressive behaviors. He has found the power to forgive. That's Paul. Who is Timothy? Who's Timothy? Well, some of the answer, of course, here lies in his relationship to Paul. From the beginning of this letter, we see the love between them. Paul calls him his dear son. In 1 Timothy, written four years earlier, he calls him his true son. Paul is like a spiritual father to Timothy. In all likelihood, Paul led Timothy into a saving relationship with Jesus when on his outreach, on his second missionary journey, Paul went to the Asian city of Lydia. And that's where he met Timothy. At the same time, Paul does not patronize him, nor take advantage of what we might call a superior status. Timothy shares in Paul's work. Paul values and regards him as a critical co-worker. Look at what he says about Timothy in the book of Philippians. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. Now, as significant as their shared work, theirs is more than a work relationship. It is even more than what we call today a mentoring or coaching relationship. There is a love and tenderness between them, a commitment. At their last departure, there were tears shed. And look at what else it says. Paul affirms Timothy's faith, calling it sincere. One commentator said this means a faith without pretense, unfeigned, genuine. This faith, he says two times in, verse in verses 5 and 6, lives in you. Now, lives in you sounds rather vanilla and does not evoke the full meaning of the Greek word behind it. The Greek word is enoikel. Commentator Robert Yarbrough is super helpful here, saying the English translation is to dwell or to inhabit, but if we examine the context of enoikel as used in the New Testament, what meaning it carries with it is a dynamic power, something active and alive within you that is not passive or static. This is the power inside of Timothy. But if we look closely, it is not only in Timothy, but it also dwelt in his mother and in his grandmother. Look at verse 5 again. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother and your mother and in your mother Eunice, 
and I am persuaded now lives in you, in Noikel also. When I hear the name Eunice, which has not yet made a comeback, I think of the hilarious skit on The Carol Burnett Show. Her playing a goofy woman named Eunice alongside of Tim Conway and Harvey Corman. Now, most of you are too young to have enjoyed this slapstick hilarity, but for those of you who do, who are laughing right now, try to disassociate that image from this one. <laughs> Timothy's mother and grandmother were Jewish. His father, Greek, his father was likely not a believer, but his mother and grandmother were. They may have come into a relationship with Jesus at the same time as Timothy. And inside of these godly women is a living and passionate faith, faith that has an impact. And as faithful Jews, they had taught him the Old Testament scriptures from the very beginning of his life. Turn over a page to chapter 3 for a moment. And in verse 16, Paul describes this teaching of scripture, and no doubt this is in reference to his mother and grandmother, verse uh, 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know that you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me pause for a moment from the narrative to encourage you mothers and grandmothers here, especially mothers. Why does Paul, why does the Holy Spirit highlight and applaud these women? Well, one reason I believe is because there is a temptation in every generation to diminish the vocation of motherhood. It has become commonplace to think about children strictly in economic terms, adding up the time, energy, and resources that must be spent to raise them, as if they are a commodity that we could put a price on. And what are the heartache, worry, and spent emotions? Women ask, if I have children, will I really be able to leave my mark on the world? And God here says to moms and to all of us who are tempted to gloss over this sacred vocation, do you recognize the power that you can have, mothers? Do you recognize it? The influence to shape future generations. Do you recognize the power of being a mother in whom the Holy Spirit is actively living and working? If you are a mom today, Receive this encouragement from the Holy Spirit because I know that you are inundated from social media with a thousand things you must do in order to be the perfect mom, which does not exist. What was Eunice's secret? What was her secret? Two things. One, have a dynamic, growing relationship with Jesus that makes your faith real in everyday situations. And two, teach your children the scriptures. 
I know there are many more things you must do, but begin and hold on to those two. One last thing about Timothy. Let's go return to our narrative. Timothy is still a young man when he receives this letter, perhaps in his early to mid-30s, and the responsibilities Paul is laying at his feet are enormous, way beyond his capacity and experience. Paul is asking Timothy to not merely be loyal to him for Paul's own sake or reputation, but he is asking Timothy to be loyal to the gospel and ready to suffer for it. And he is asking Timothy to guard the gospel at this vulnerable moment. Look at verse 13 in chapter 1. Timothy, what you have heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is the theme for our series, Entrusted with the Gospel. You see, the message then, the gospel then, was so new and so powerful. And it was attracting people from all over the Roman Empire, men, women, slaves, artisans, landowners, rich and poor alike. It was inevitable that some would try to hijack the story to their own advantage. False teaching abounded. Alternative narratives about Jesus flourished. There was widespread apostasy, as we've already seen. On top of that, Nero is ramping up his fanatical persecution of the church. One commentator wrote of this very moment that Christianity trembled, and humanly speaking, it was on the verge of annihilation. This is why Timothy will need power and love and self-control. Verse 7. Now, try to walk for a moment in Timothy's shoes. You are reading this letter. What would you feel? What fears would erupt? You are, one, losing your spiritual father. Two, you are being asked to defend and guard and carry the gospel message on, for gospel forward. And three, you are charged with overseeing fledgling churches that are barely hanging on. Without God's grace, with God's, without God's power, it was too much to ask for. If you can grasp that, this is Timothy. Our staff has begun reading a book together on managing the anxiety that comes from leadership. It's a book that Pastor Nick has read and grown from and is now taking us through. And we all wrestled with the opening story from the author describing himself as a 24-year-old hospital chaplain without any experience or training and being thrown into a situation where an entire family had just learned that their beloved matriarch had suddenly died. And in that room, they were, there was flailing and crying and yelling. And one woman was 
you know, smacking her head against the, the wall. This guy had never even seen a dead body before. And while we agreed that he should have had more training as we all felt his pain, we also agreed that there are things in life you cannot prepare for. You just have to do it. You have to face the real possibility of failure and be willing to learn and grow. Okay, so we've looked at Paul and Timothy, and this, I, I hope, has opened up the entire meaning of the book for you. So now, in my remaining time, in the second part of our message, let's drill down now on today's section. What else does this say to us? I've already talked to mothers, but what else does this say? And we have to remember, friends, that 2 Timothy was written from a leader to a leader, and its most direct applications are to pastors and church leaders, evangelists and missionaries. Second Timothy is what we call, is a part of the pastoral epistles. But for the everyday believer, how does it speak? And recall our three questions here. So again, if you're looking at, I think it's verse six or seven, five or six, let's drill down on this first question. How can I fan into flame the gift of God in me? Now, Timothy's gift was given symbolically through the laying on of hands, he says. And it's very possible this refers to his ordination. And here, Timothy receives preaching and uh, teaching and evangelistic gifts to do his ministry. Paul, uh, he would need these gifts in order to do what Paul is asking. But to fan those gifts into flame, right, it presupposes that those gifts can stagnate from lack of use, just as the embers of a fire grow cold from lack of attention. Fear, timidity, lack of confidence can deaden that flame. It's possible Timothy's in that place. Paul says on the other side of the equation, there is love and power and self-control that result from the Spirit being in us, and through those qualities, we can overcome our fears. So does the command to fan into flame your gifts apply to non-pastors and non-leaders? Of course, yes, absolutely yes. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We believe that we are all members of the body of Christ. We did an expansive series on the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts last year. We began in February. It went through early July. You can find those messages on our website. So how does this passage add to that reservoir of understanding? Well, we've already said it. Our spiritual gifts can stagnate from lack of attention, lack of use, coming from fear and timidity. Exercising the gift that Timothy had required courage just like for us. You know, your spiritual gifts that you have, they may be consistent with how God has wired you, 
But that does not negate the reality that exercising our gift requires stepping out in faith and doing, doing what is uncomfortable. How do you, for example, fan into flame the gift of teaching, if that is your gift? By setting aside fears of failure. The fear of not knowing how to answer a question or how I'll look if I don't know how to answer a question. The fear of others thinking that I'm being proud for, for taking a lead role. It's setting aside those fears like that and just doing it. So I say yes when my life group leader asked me to lead the discussion for the night. How do I fan into flame the gift of leadership? It is by setting aside my insecurities and all the reasons I feel unworthy and just beginning to lead. I take the risk of beginning a new ministry or accepting a new responsibility. How do I fan into flame the gift of mercy? By putting aside my fears of not knowing what I'm going to say to a hurting person, my fear of being inadequate, and just showing up and learning through my own fumbling, sometimes saying the wrong things in order to learn how to show mercy. So I say yes when a pastor or a deacon or a life group leader asks me to visit the home of a grieving wife who has just lost her husband, even though it terrifies me. Now, I'm not setting aside our need for training but the focus here is on faith, that the Spirit of God is in you, and the Spirit of God has the power to equip you for every ministry moment he directs you in. We can't, friends, exercise our gifts in a safe, tightly controlled area without risk of failure. If we wait until our fears, our insecurities, our inadequacies are all silenced, we will never step onto the playing field. That impulse to serve will be squashed by timidity and by fear. So friends, if your gifts are in neutral, let me encourage you to take some time to identify the fears holding you back. Name them. Trace them to their root. Ask yourself, what is this fear all about? Am I unwilling to be vulnerable? Am I unwilling to be in a situation where I won't automatically know what to say or do? Am I unwilling to be in a situation where I just might look foolish? You know, I had this great fear of being irrelevant. I had this oversized fear of being boring. And it's based on some past criticism, which was unjust. But it's an insecurity in me. It doesn't paralyze me. It doesn't keep me from stop me. But it causes me when speaking to be inclined to trust more in myself and my abilities than trust in God. And when giving this insecurity room to operate, it takes my focus off of Jesus and his acceptance of me and puts it on the shaky waters of how others respond to me. 
A change has come to me. Still coming. I'm still a work in progress. But as I learn to listen to God and what's revealed by the Holy Spirit, and I name my insecurity, and I repent of such nonsense, I become more deeply anchored in my life in Christ. Friends, if you need help tracing your fears to their root, talk with a trusted Christian friend, pastor, or counselor. For our church in the next season to make the kind of leadership hands-off, leadership handoff that is necessary as our founding generation moves forward, we need that founding generation, we need that older generation to have the courage to let go at the right time. That's a unique kind of courage. And we need the younger generation to have the courage to step into those roles and be willing to risk. Both decisions are rooted from a secure identity in Jesus. But here's a challenge for every one of you. Fan your flame. Fan the, put your spiritual gifts, fan them into flame. Actively seek an outlet for them and when you find it, step out in faith courageously. Now, the next thing Paul tells us to do is to be willing to suffer for the gospel. Verse 6 or 7. For Timothy, his exercise of his gifts might put him in harm's way. If Paul does what Timothy, if Timothy does what Paul says, it might land him in the same Roman prison. It certainly will mean plenty of difficult conversations in confronting false teaching. It will certainly mean getting involved in difficult relationship conflicts. It will certainly mean hours of lonely study to preach the Word of God accurately. But you might wonder, as an everyday Christian and not as a leader, am I called to suffer for the gospel? And the answer is yes. But what does that look like? Well, there are all kinds of things we can suffer from in this life, physical, mental, economic, the loss of a loved one. But here, Paul has a different kind of suffering in view. It is suffering because you are a follower of Jesus. It is a suffering because you may not fit in with the popular crowd. It is suffering because your values and beliefs might be ridiculed or rejected. Raising the flag that you are a Christian could mean not getting a promotion. It could mean being impacted economically, or it could mean not being included or invited into certain social settings. And when there are values or beliefs that the culture expects you to be excited about or endorse because they are convinced those values are good and just. And yet you cannot share in that excitement because you believe Jesus is Lord and you have a different vision, therefore, of what is good and just. Friends, this, this exerts a certain pressure on you. Do you, under, do you understand that? Even if nothing is ever said to you personally, 
Just this reality exerts a pressure on you. Friends, this is a kind of suffering for the gospel that followers of Jesus experience. Now again, think of what Paul and Timothy were facing. Do we face the same realities? One, people they loved who were once committed followers of Jesus were turning away. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how many of you, many of you have tasted that? Someone you love, someone you're close to, someone you, you, has been a Christian for many years, they deconstruct their faith and want nothing more to do with it. It's sad, it's heartbreaking, it's confusing, and it may create a crisis of faith for you. You experience dissonance. You wonder how strong are my foundations? This experience is a form of suffering for the gospel. Secondly, they suffered from those who were twisting the gospel. They were twisting the words of Jesus. And then from that platform of a new gospel, they criticized and attacked Paul and Timothy, saying all kinds of terrible things. Does this still happen today? Absolutely. People twist the meaning, the clear meaning of Jesus' words, and then from an ostensibly spiritual place accuse you of hurtful attitudes and hurtful things. This, my friends, is an experience of suffering for the gospel. Lastly, Paul and Timothy were persecuted by the state, the Roman government under Nero. The church has always been a problem for overreaching governments. Whether it was ancient Rome or Nazi Germany are many countries in existence today. Overreaching governments accrue more and more power and demand more and more authority. And when this happens, the line between the authority of the state and church begin to blur. The lines between the authority of the state and the family begin to blur. And friends, you don't have to be a Christian to have this understanding. You can simply read a history book. You see, because we believe Jesus is Lord, our primary love and allegiance is to him and not the state. That is not a problem. It's not a source of suffering when the state supports a Christian view of life and respects the authority of the church. Of course, it's a problem when they don't. As to the early Christians, the time of Paul and Timothy, and particularly the generations after them, the early Christians did not worship the Roman gods. In ancient Rome, the gods were seamlessly interwoven through all the social, cultural, and political life of Rome. And the stability of the Roman Empire, it was believed, hinged on keeping peace with these gods. So Roman citizens had required rituals intended to hold together the delicate balance. Jews were exempt from the required rituals because their religion was ancient and thought to be purely ethnic. So it was not deemed a threat. But Christianity was new. It was pulling from the ranks of former 
pagans, and it was not purely ethnic. And most damning, it was preaching a God higher than Caesar. That was a threat. Presently, in one of the Asian nations that is high on the spectrum of government authority, their crackdown on the church happened after Christians mobilized for disaster relief. And it was the sheer numbers involved and how quickly they were able to mobilize that terrified the government and was perceived as a threat. One of the first methods to the crackdown was to limit the maximum number who could attend church services. The 20th century missionary, respected, very respected, he's now passed, the 20th century missionary Leslie Newbigin said that when a religious worldview, when a religious worldview is lost on a nation, it is inevitable that the power of the state will grow. Why is that? Well, simple, because people are no longer looking to God or the church for their needs, but increasingly to the state for happiness, health, and welfare. Matter of fact, they will demand it. And in this kind of environment, raw political power are finding a sense of belonging with others in some political cause will be a part of filling that spiritual vacuum. This certainly is part, not total part, but this certainly is part of the explanation of the vast expanse of our own federal government, as well as the increase in radical engagement in political and social causes on both sides of the ledger. And it is why individual freedom, and it is why religious freedom is a cause of concern for many in our nation, not only, but including Christians. There are people in our culture who are hostile to the message of Jesus and are willing to leverage the power of government to restrict and to limit the gospel as if that was possible. Friends, when we see this, when we read about it in the paper or see it in the news and our heart grows heavy, or we personally experience someone's anger or rage for what we stand for, friends, that is a form of suffering for the gospel. And so I ask this question, are only leaders called to suffer for the gospel? And I hope that I have shown that as followers of Jesus, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, we too are called to walk in his steps. And we too are called to suffer for the gospel. Now, should we be downcast about this? Should we be like walking around with frowns and in dread? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But like the apostles, we should rejoice that we've been counted worthy to suffer for his name. In the New Testament, Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching turns upside down the notion of suffering, 
Philippians, just a few verses, there's many. Philippians 1, 29, Paul said, it's been granted to you. Oh boy, thanks, Paul. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Romans 8, 17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. Why? In order. In order that we may share in his glory. Okay, very briefly. Final question. It's actually in verse 8 in the text. Final question for application. How do we suffer by the power of God? How do we suffer by the power of God? I think that small add-on in verse 8 is so important. How do we suffer by the power of God? What does that reveal? It reveals that we can suffer without the power of God. Suffering without the power of God is to see all of these things purely from a human point of view and to leave God out of the equation. When Paul suffered, as I mentioned earlier, he did not fall into the emotional quicksand of self-pity, bitterness, or regret. He saw the sovereignty of God through it all. He did not believe the purposes of God could be inhibited or stopped. In chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he says this to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. That's the gospel message. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. And because he saw his suffering as not resulting from chance or random, but as part of what God was doing in his life, then he was able to forgive some who had really hurt and betrayed him. And I'm sure, by the way, when they betrayed him, they did not leave like just on good, in, in good, good, uh, good terms. I think when they left, they probably slammed the door. There was a lot of talk about why they left, justifying why they left. But Paul was able to forgive when treated unjustly or misunderstood or disrespected. Did you pick up what he said in chapter 4? He says of those who distanced themselves from him at his hardest hour, what did he say? May it not be held against them. Where do those words come from? They are the very words Jesus said to those who crucified him. In Jesus, we have the greatest friends. This is not an overstatement. This is not exaggeration. In Jesus, Son of God become man, we have the greatest picture in human history of what it means to suffer by the power of God. No human being was treated more cruelly or unjustly. No human being was more deeply humiliated. No human being tasted more bitterly the anguish of human existence. No human being ever entered into the darkness of the human heart more heroically. 
Yet to the very end, he continued to entrust himself to his father. To the very end, he continued to forgive. And to the very end, he continued to invite lost souls into his eternal kingdom. That's who we love. That's who we serve. That's who calls us into a relationship with him. That's who calls us to fan our spiritual gifts, to fan them into flame. That's who calls us to suffer for the gospel along with him, with him. And that's who calls us, when we do suffer, to suffer by the power of God. Nick and Caleb, won't you work your way up? It's because of the cross and the way that he suffered that we remember Jesus today through these two symbols, the bread and the juice. It's why we come with joy in our hearts, right? I mean, we come with joy in our hearts. Joy is central to God's being, and, and he's bounding with it. And when we, we're connected to him, we can't help but experience joy. But we also come with somber reverence, right? We also come with reverence because of how he suffered on our behalf. His body broken for us, represented in the bread. His blood spilled for the forgiveness of our sins, represented in the juice. I'll come back up in a moment, but ushers, you can begin wherever you are. Ushers, go ahead and just start now. We're gonna start now releasing people. And come forward. Take the elements, the bread. Go ahead and take the juice. Take them back to your seat and hold on, them, hold on to them. And we'll take them together in a moment.